Yesenia Funes, it's the day after the 2020 general election. So much to process. Yesenia, what did you do on election night? I did not watch anything related to the election. I made chicken burritos and I poured myself some wine. It was like some of the first wine that I've had in a month because I was doing Sobertober. And I just chilled out. I just hung out with my partner and we tried not to think about the election. But I was super anxious, so I stayed up much later than I wanted to and had to eat some melatonin gummies to (laughs) get me to bed. How about you? What what did you do, Andrew? My wife, Anjin, whom you know, we were basically calling election day, we are just calling it lasagna night. We were just (laughs) kind of referring to the day in that way as something, you know, maybe a little lighter. So we had lasagna, which was delicious, and I admittedly tuned in to watch the TV coverage. And I think you had the right idea, Yesenia, to not tune in because my anxiety level went from cool and chilled out, you know, with wine and lasagna to (laughs) 10.5. Well, I'm Andrew Simon, and this is Temperature Check, a new podcast from Grist. Temperature Check is a weekly show about climate, race, and culture. And today in the co-host chair with me is Yesenia Funes, uh, whom you've already heard from a little bit. She's the climate editor over at Atmos Magazine, which covers climate and culture. Uh, If you haven't seen her work already, she's been doing climate justice reporting uh, for years now, particularly at Earther uh, and other publications. And, you know, Yesenia, it's safe to say it's been quite a week so far, and we have a lot of ground to cover. So let's jump right into it. Let's do it. It is the afternoon of Wednesday, November 4. Uh, We don't know the results of the presidential election just yet. Maybe we will by the time the episode drops. Maybe we won't. But either way, it's a close race. What does this all mean for climate justice and the climate movement in general? You know, the president has a lot of power, whether that's Trump or Biden. Trump has already pushed through plenty of destructive climate policy, which he plans to only continue doing if he wins. Um, You know, public lands projects that are just up in the air right now in terms of like opening them up to oil and gas companies. And Biden has been pretty clear that he'll reverse much, if not all, (laughs) of what Trump has already begun. So depending on what happens there, the future is looking really uncertain. There's a lot that also hinges on local races, local leaders, local community organizing that I think, you know, will work out regardless of who's at the top, as we've seen communities trying to do even these last four years. Even if Biden wins, the work doesn't stop. There's still plenty of work to do to push, you know, Joe one way or the other on on the issues that they care about. So I would say I'm not sure. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no, that that's fair. You know, it seems like the Biden campaign has, to some degree, listened to to grassroots environmental groups, to environmental justice groups, has brought some environmental justice policies into his platform through the work of you know Sunrise Movement, etc. And you know, I'm just wondering, do you think this energy coming from environmental justice groups, from frontline communities that have been you know really energized and activated this election period, do you see that momentum continuing regardless of the result? Oh, 100 percent, 100 percent. You know, these communities, these organizers, they don't have a choice. Like they have to keep organizing. Some of us had the luxury of not experiencing the climate crisis 
now, but they don't, you know, so there, there's no other option for them. It's just a degree of like, how much harder will their work be? Right. Or how much perhaps easier, you know, will it be, though? That's not saying it's going to be easy at all. Biden has still plenty of work to do. You know, his his hesitance to ban fracking and this his campaign got really, really serious about fracking forever. I mean, toward right. the end there. This feel, really feels like this was the fracking election, you know, in terms of like the <laughs> environmental story, right? I, I mean, I, I didn't see that coming, the amount of time the, the two candidates spoke about fracking. I certainly would call this the election started to pay attention to fracking. Yeah. Well, ho- hopefully we'll, it will also lead to a nuanced conversation around fracking, right? Because, you know, I feel like with politics today, it's often just throwing stones at one another without trying to be constructive about all of this. Yeah. You know, but that's the thing that's so discouraging and just like super frustrating is that progressives who are pushing forth climate policy want climate policy that's right, going right. to address the labor aspect of this, right? Like the Green New Deal is all about transitioning right. those fracking workers into better jobs and ensuring that they aren't left out in the cold the way that coal workers were. That's at the heart of the Green New Deal. And yet there is, you know, no effort to to make such a proposal a reality. And even Biden, if he, you know, wins, he's been adamant that the Green New Deal is not going to be a part of his his strategy. Though, of course, like his climate plan is sort of like built on a Green New Deal vision, it's it's just really disheartening that that that's not becoming more of a conversation of like people don't want to leave these individuals out of work. They want to give them just as good, if not better, jobs in the renewables, in the sustainability sector, in this just transition. So hopefully uh, progressives do a better job of framing these issues that way, because that definitely was lost in this election. Well, it's a great segue to the conversation we're about to get into uh, on today's episode with Julian Brave Noisecat, VP of Policy and Strategy uh, at Data for Progress, a nonprofit uh, progressive think tank. Uh, he's one of these young, really influential people, writers, policy drafters, someone who is working on environmental protections for all communities. I'm a big fan of his work, especially around the Green New Deal, since I report on it really closely. And he's one of the authors of the proposal. So really, really dope that y'all are having him on. Yeah. And, you know, climate justice is social justice. And as it turns out, Julian has some really interesting insights when it comes to voters uh, heading into the election. So we're just excited to dive into this conversation with him today. Cool. All right. So hang tight while we get into this conversation with Julian Brave Noisecat. Again, this is Temperature Check from Grist. Hi, I'm Mirka, the Social Media Engagement Fellow at Grist.org. Temperature Check is a new show about climate, race, and culture produced by Grist and made possible by listeners like you. Founded in 1999, Grist remains committed to changing the national narrative around climate. And as a nonprofit, none of our work is possible without the steady and loyal support from people like you. At a time when our global community demands action to address the climate crisis, our work at Grist has never been more important. Every day we work tirelessly to bring you the climate news that matters most. And for us to engage our audience of millions of people, we need you. So thank you for joining today's episode, and please consider making a donation to Grist today. Donate now, and your gift will be matched dollar for dollar. Thanks for tuning in. All right, and we're back with Julian Brave Noisecat. Uh, welcome in, Julian. Thank you so much for having me, Andrew. 
In 2020 alone, we've just seen these multiple crises come to a head. And I just have to wonder, as an orientation, what's your starting point for addressing multiple crises like this? Uh, you know, where do you begin when it comes to solving for all of this? It's really daunting when you look at the depth and multitude of challenges that we face as a species, as a nation, and then in particular as, as people of color and indigenous people. The way that I sort of ground myself in thinking about that is remembering that my ancestors, um, including my, my own grandmother and, and family, you know, survived a, a genocide, the genocide that created the settler societies on this continent. And, um, you know, that we are, we are survivors, that we know how to get through some of the most trying experiences that humans have ever, ever faced and that there can still be love and, and beauty and, and art and all the wonderful things that we're capable of as humans, compassion, care, all of that on the other side of you know, harrowing mm. um, histories. One of the themes that's come up in the writing that I've read of yours is kind of some connections between the younger generations of indigenous activists and leaders and the Black Lives Matter movement. I think in one of your pieces, you even use the term the Standing Rock generation. And I'm just wondering, in this year of racial reckoning, have you noticed a kind of continued coming together of social movements? You know, I think that we need to step back and ask, you know, what is a social movement, firstly? And I think Mm. that that's actually a really, it's a very amorphous sort of thing Mm. and question for me, right? Like, Mm. there is certainly a very massive group of people who this summer showed up for, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement. It was actually, by most measures, the largest social movement in United States history. And one way of measuring that is, you know, what are the estimates of the number of people who attended a protest? Mm. Um, and I think the New York Times published numbers on that about uh, of being around like 16, 16 million people. Another way of measuring that is what are the organizations and what is the infrastructure that is built to organize people into those causes, things like uh, the movement for Black Lives. And I think one of the more encouraging developments that I've seen in uh, not just the climate space, but I think in the sort of left progressive space more generally, is an acknowledgement by historically white groups that they need to be in dialogue with, and actually in, in many instances following the lead of Uh, community of color-based organizations. But, you know, the essential sort of big picture challenge in all of this is that, like, in a legislative scenario, how does, you know, a party that includes both the people who protest pipelines and the unions and workers who build them, you know, how how do you keep that very broad coalition of people together? We have to create a majority out of all of, of this very diverse, you know, set of coalitions and constituencies that alone are not majorities, but when you pull them together, can create a governing majority. I'd love to dive into some interesting work you're doing. Uh, you just dropped a, a report with Data for Progress on climate equity policies, and you know, one of the learnings that that I um, came away with was that the majority of polled voters in the report said they're aware of or concerned about climate justice and climate injustice. And I'm just kind of w- wondering what stood out to you most about the findings in this report. 
I think it's unreasonable to ask, you know, a thousand voters as we do on our national surveys, what something like climate justice is and actually expect them to give a cogent, coherent answer. I mean, on most days, like right. I could not give you like a one sentence <laughs> definition of, right. of climate justice necessarily. Right, you know, this right. stuff is complicated. On this particular survey, actually it was two surveys that we ran in September and then October, we didn't just sort of test support for climate justice policies. We actually started with concern about pollution, concern about a number of housing, economic, financial, job insecurity questions, fears of being displaced by affordability concerns, extreme weather events, all of those sorts of indicators of environmental and climate injustice. And we found surprising levels of concern, worry, in the responses to those surveys. So firstly, I think it's worth saying that a significant and and growing as we move forward portion of the electorate of likely voters are facing what would be described by most researchers as environmental injustice, climate injustice, environmental racism. So one of the very fascinating developments of the last couple of years is it's not just like, you know, people like Representative Ocasio-Cortez, you know, who represents the 14th district of New York, a D plus 29 district that is majority people of color and plurality Latino, who are working on issues of climate equity and, and justice. Uh, it's also people like, you know, Frank Pallone, who um, was actually the target of uh, Sunrise Movement sit-in in the launch of the Green New Deal. So there is quite a wide sort of array of um, Democrats in the caucus and in the House who think that we need to be legislating on issues of environmental and climate injustice moving forward, which I think is really, you know, hopeful to me. It was not until very recently that you would even hear terms like climate change and social justice, you know, smashed together like that. The term climate justice itself is a fairly recent uh, vintage, particularly on the national on the national stage. So that is very encouraging. We tested support for something like a federal equity mapping initiative, uh, something that we actually do right now through something called uh, the Environmental Protection Agency's EJ screen, but which is really sort of fallen into disrepair and is not being used and really needs to be updated in a way that would ensure that places like Mississippi's Delta and, you know, the South Bronx have comparable, you know, levels of data collection on the things that you need in order to make and formulate policy. Uh, and we found that a, a majority of voters, you know, would support a federal equity mapping initiative, even when they're presented with partisan arguments for and against it, which tells to me, you know, that even in this very divided era of United States politics, uh, that these are the kinds of initiatives that lawmakers can lean into with the confidence that they can get majority support from the electorate on these issues. And at the end of the day, you know, politics is, is math. I'm just wondering if you might be able to take a step back and just talk about what this climate equity mapping initiative is and how it would help certain frontline communities facing climate change. Right. So, you know, in order to take any sort of action to mitigate injustice through regulations, through investment, through policy, through democratic decision making, et cetera, uh, you know, you first need to be able to gather data and then map data geographically about where, you know, there are higher levels of pollution, where there is uh, higher levels of pollution from the water, et cetera, sort of these these clear indicators of inequality and injustice as they exist 
in our very unequal and you know still essentially segregated society. Actually, this is this is in many ways the origin of terms like environmental justice and environmental racism. Dr. Robert Bullard, who is often considered mm. the quote unquote father of environmental justice, first identified that basically all of the you know dumping sites in Houston, which is where he did his first study, were in black communities because he used maps to show that those toxic sites were being located in black communities. And so it's really maps and the ability to see where the burdens of pollution, the burdens of poverty, and now the burdens of global warming and the impacts of climate change are are landing that actually shows us that there is environmental racism in our society. Uh, And this is incredibly important when, you know, we're discussing how we mitigate the injustice and inequality that exists in United States society. Have there been any moments where you and your colleagues at Data for Progress almost feel like you had a breakthrough where you thought, okay, we're reaching beyond the choir a little bit with what we're doing? One of the positive stories of this general election season has been the very atypical movement of the Biden campaign towards more progressive climate policy positions. I honestly did not anticipate that we would get as strong commitments out of them on general election footing as we did. After convening a unity task force that included surrogates from the Bernie Sanders camp, the Biden campaign updated its climate plans to include a commitment to 100% clean electricity by 2035, upped its investment number to $2 trillion, and then also committed to investing 40% of that two trillion into the communities that are most impacted by poverty and pollution uh, into frontline communities is, is the term. But, you know, I, I would say that in this instance, I am holding out some hope that the party isn't only running on the issues that we care about, but is also potentially going to legislate and act mm. on them. Well, I'd like to shift gears a bit here. You've written a lot about art and culture and culture is one of the primary themes of this podcast. And you recently published a piece about your dad, uh, Ed Noisecat, who's an acclaimed artist. And one of the things that jumped out to me is that some of your dad's recent work is a commentary on resource extraction and the fossil fuel industry. And I just wonder, you know, how has art and maybe your dad's art in particular influenced you? Well, firstly, it's I, it's a little bit of an escape from like the hard politics yeah, uh, right, right. <laughs> um, and advocacy work, which is really sure. good. You know, I think that from a personality and what keeps me going Mm. kind of level, like the creative life is really essential to me. And I think that's part of what drives me to to writing is that writing is more of an art than Mm. a science. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, obviously my dad's an artist and uh, I guess that that sort of creative, I don't know, that creative drive uh, is something that I, I think I got from him. One of the cool things I think about about art is that it, in my experience of it, it is something that can bring people joy. It can bring people inspiration. Uh, it can call people in to look at not just objects and aesthetics, but also like social issues and things like that in ways that they might not have right. otherwise done from like an advocacy and, you know, social issues perspective, some of the most powerful statements that have occurred over the last 
five, 10 years about the biggest issues of our day have been made right. at the end of the day by, by artists. And, you know, I think uh, also you can see in the, particularly I think in the art that um, artists of color are making, you can also see sort of the ways that social movements and trends inspire and, and lead to the creation of art. So art is both an escape, but it's also, I think, um, it is a uniquely powerful way for uh, people to engage with some of these big, heady, and essential questions. You know, I was just thinking about another piece you you wrote, uh, how Indigenous filmmakers are shaping the future of cinema. And are we starting to see a shift, at least to a public, a more public, wider audience, where there are more Indigenous stories being told, uh, more perspectives being shared, and then also with kind of requisitely, is there a growing audience for for this type of storytelling? Yeah, you know, I I'm pretty sure we're we're gonna see more Indigenous content and films and and TV shows being made. Actually, just the other day before we recorded this, it was announced that Ava DuVernay is funding a new Native directed, written, and casted uh, TV show. And oh, one wow. of my uh, close family friends, a woman named Sydney Freeland, uh, is going to be, I think, the director uh, or at the helm of, of of that show. So that's incredibly exciting stuff. And, um, you know, I think obviously, even in that sort of anecdote, right, you're seeing various people of color sort of showing up for each other and giving each other opportunities. If the, you know, creative, if the storytelling, if the art is good enough, um, then it will just, by virtue of its quality, like create an audience for it. Um, that's generally how I approach my journalism is like, you know, I might be writing about indigenous written and produced and directed films that people might not have heard about. But if I do it well enough, you know, then you might create a, you might create an audience for it. All right, so we're moving on to the pop culture part of the show. Uh, and again, today we're speaking with Julian Brave Noisecat, writer and VP of Policy and Strategy at Data for Progress, a nonprofit progressive think tank. And Julian, um, if we could, uh, I'd like to go back to that piece you wrote about indigenous filmmakers where you mentioned Jay-Z and Nas in the story. And when I read that, I really thought, all right, I have to ask, who's your favorite rapper, Jay-Z or Nas? <laughs> Between those two. Oh, between those two? Um, tough question. I would say Nas at his best, I prefer to Jay-Z, but Jay-Z is more consistent. Nas like was so unbelievably good with Illmatic, but then like his career since then was so inconsistent. And Jay-Z, on the other hand, I think he produced more consistently good music, although I think his peaks weren't as good as Nas's peaks. I think Elmatic as an album stands out as one of the great pieces of art, uh, certainly in my time. But I, I think it's hard to argue against Jay-Z's longevity uh, in his career and how he's branched out business-wise. Has music influenced you and in all that you do? You know, we've talked a little bit about the art that your family has done, um, but I'm just wondering if music in particular has influenced you at all. I think at the end of the day, writing is about, it's about rhythm, in my opinion. Good writing isn't about like how big of the words are that you use. It's about like the rhythm of the sentences as as they're put down. I played some instruments when I was growing up, and I think that that actually does influence the way that I write. 
I'm a really slow reader because I actually am reading everything aloud in my own head, which mm. I think is bad for the number of pages that I can cover, but has helped me a little bit with the writing. And then also growing up and until uh, the end of college, I, um, I was a competitive powwow dancer on the um, powwow circuit in the United States and Canada. Mm. I traveled all over from Edmonton, Alberta to San Diego to New York and all sorts of places in between and competed and actually won a decent amount. When I was 20 years old, I won a, I won a horse <laughs> um, dancing at a powwow. What? So that was one of the formative experiences for me and obviously is a lot to do with you know, the musicality of, of the song and knowing the songs and dances and all that sort of stuff. Would you please just say more about what the powwow dancing circuit is? Yeah, so powwows are contemporary native celebrations that are mm. sort of pan-tribal that are often competitive in nature. And so there are competitions in singing. Then there are also competitions in various dance categories for men and women that are also broken down by age group. I started dancing when I was a kid. I grew up in Oakland, California, where there's the third oldest urban Indian community center. And every Thursday night, still to this day, uh, they have powwow drum and dance practice. And so I, I learned how to dance when I was a kid um, and then ended up you know, traveling all over. And if you actually go on YouTube and stuff, there's, uh, there's all sorts of videos and things from celebrations across North America. Um, it's a pretty big, pretty big phenomenon for, for Native people. If you don't know, now you know um, about the powwow dancing circuit. That sounds incredible. I can't wait to, to dive more into it. Well, Julian, it's been so fun speaking with you today. Thank you just so much for coming on Temperature Check and sharing your insights and work with us. By the way, where can people find your work? Well, firstly, thank you so much for having me. This is really a uh, great conversation. Let's see. So my work is, uh, I'm on Twitter too much. So my, my Twitter is at jnoisecat. All of my writing and more valuable contributions in the form of writing are on my website, which is julianbravenoisecat.com. Once again, uh, thank you, Julian Brave Noisecat, VP of Policy and Strategy at the nonprofit think tank, Data for Progress. Thanks so much. And I'm back here now with my co-host today, Yesenia Funes. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show to talk about what's going on in the world this week. Uh, you know, just a few things. Um, and for sticking around for my conversation with Julian Brave Noisecat, it's been such a pleasure to hang out with you uh, virtually. Yeah, same, Andrew. Can't wait for the after time when we can finally hang out together in person again. <laughs> Yes, indeed. Uh, drink on me for sure. So that was the incredible, uh, awesome, amazing Atmos Magazine climate editor, Yesenia Funes. And Yesenia, quickly before we go, you have a new newsletter, right? You might have alluded to it earlier, but if not, um, what's that about? Where can people find it and how can people subscribe and all that good stuff? Yeah, so it's a Monday through Thursday environmental justice newsletter called The Frontline, focusing on frontline communities, bringing their voices to the forefront of the climate conversation uh, with many opinions by yours truly. Um, and folks can subscribe at the Atmos magazine website. So that's Atmos, A-T-M-O-S dot Earth, E-A-R-T-H. And uh, you'll probably find one of the frontline editions on the, on the homepage. It should be easy to find. 
All right. Big thanks to Julian Brave Noisecat for joining us on today's episode. Make sure to follow him on Twitter at jnoisecat. Uh, he is such an impressive uh, individual. Temperature Check is a podcast from Gris, produced in collaboration with Reasonable Volume. It's hosted by me, Andrew Simon, and my co-homie today was Yesenia Funes, climate editor over at Atmos Magazine. It's produced by Brianna Flores, with editing by Elise Hugh and Rachel Swaby. Caroline Saunders is Gris' chief of staff, and this podcast marketing lead, Sound Engineering, is by Mark Bush. Gris is a nonprofit reader-supported newsroom covering climate, justice, and solutions. If you'd like to support what we do, you can rate, subscribe, and tell all your friends to subscribe to Temperature Check. You can also help to sustain our work by going to grist.org slash donate. That's G-R-I-S-T dot org slash donate. Uh, next week, uh, it's going to be another week again. <laughs> Deja vu, right? We will see you at the end of it. Until next time. Thank you.